We are reading today from 1 Samuel chapter 1, the whole of chapter 1. These are God's words. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Alkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two women. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, and Hannah had no children. And this man ascended out of his city from year to year to prostrate and to sacrifice unto Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, priests unto Yahweh, were there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he gave to Penina his woman and to all her sons and her daughters portions. And unto Hannah he gave a double portion, for he loved Hannah, and Yahweh had shut up her womb. And her rival provoked her sore to make her fret because Yahweh had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she ascended to the house of Yahweh, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. And Elkanah, her man, said unto her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? And Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk, and Eli the priest was sitting upon his seat by the doorpost of the palace of Yahweh. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto Yahweh, and weeping wept. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thy handmaid, but wilt give unto thy handmaid a male seed, then I will give him unto Yahweh all the days of his life. And there shall no razor ascend upon his head. And it came to be, as she multiplied praying before Yahweh, that Eli watched her mouth. And Hannah, she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. And thought Eli was drunk. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunk? Take away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit, and neither wine nor strong drink have I drunk, and I have poured out my soul before Yahweh. Do not set forth unto thy handmaid the face of a daughter of worthlessness, for out of the abundance of my sorrow and my provocation have I spoken until now. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was not sad again. And they rose early in the morning and prostrated before Yahweh, and turned back and came to their house to Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his woman, and, Hannah, uh, and Yahweh remembered her. And it came to be at the revolution of the days that, Yahweh, that Hannah conceived and brought forth a son. And she called his name Samuel. Because from Yahweh have I asked him. And the man Elkanah and all his house ascended to sacrifice unto Yahweh the sacrifice of the days and his vow. And Hannah ascended not. For she said unto her man, Not until the youngster be weaned, and I will bring him, that he may appear before the face of Yahweh, and abide there even unto the age. Which is a Hebrew idiom for forever. And Elkanah her man said unto her, Do what is good in thine eyes. Abide until thou have weaned him. Only Yahweh established his word. 
And the woman abode and suckled her son until she weaned him, and she took him to ascend with her when she had weaned him, with three bullocks and one aphor of meal and a jar of wine, and brought him unto the house of Yahweh in Shiloh. And the youngster was young, and they slew the bullock and brought the youngster to Ailey. And she said, O my Lord, as my soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, praying unto Yahweh. For this youngster I prayed, and Yahweh hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have granted him to Yahweh. All the days that he liveth, he is granted to Yahweh. And he prostrated unto Yahweh there. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. Please send your spirit to help me to rightly divide it and to plant it in our souls and to make it grow and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So this is the tenth sermon in our series on vocation, but it would be better to think of it as the second part of the ninth, last week's sermon, because that is what I want to build on last week. We didn't really have time to say everything that I want to say today. It would have, well, it would have taken us until well after lunchtime, but um, these sermons really should be listened to together, so hopefully we'll have the other one up soon so that you can listen to it again if you need to. Last week, you remember we looked at the question of how women image God, given that men image both God the Father as name givers and God the Son as dominion takers. I think one of the chief pastoral issues that the patriarchal movement, so-called, has yet to really grapple with is the question of how women image God. And I say that this is a pastoral issue because although last week's sermon was obviously very theological, this is an issue that connects to real psychological struggles that many women have. It connects to serious questions that they ask about daily living and piety and to deep misgivings that they feel about the goodness of God's design. I think our particular slice of the church is at a moment in time where we've seen our car about to slide into the ditch of feminism, and we've yanked the wheel over, and we're kind of mid-correction, where the car is technically in the middle of the road again, and if you just looked at the situation like a still image, you might be fooled into thinking, we're doing fine, we're in the middle of the road. And that is how we tend to look at it, because in the analogy, everything is happening in super slow motion. Even when things happen fast, we're talking about millions of Christians in tens of thousands of churches, and they're all kind of loosely affiliated with these very elastic connections between the people, and so it takes months for major changes to usually start to happen. It took Michael and I years to write a book. It is taking many more years for the effects of that book to work out in people's lives. Everything happens very slowly, but if we return to the car analogy, just because it's happening in slow motion, it does not mean that it is stable. You can see a crash in slow motion. What we are in is actually a highly dynamic situation with enormous amounts of energy that needs to be directed very carefully if we're not going to lead to a sustained loss of traction and 
a wild spin into the opposite ditch. So we are right in the middle of trying to calibrate our input on the steering wheel and the brakes and the accelerator so that we don't oversteer. We're actually really just starting to feel the weight of the car shift, but there's a lot more mass behind it that hasn't really started moving yet. And what is going to happen once it does? Now, I realize this is a highly ironic analogy to be using when my chief concern today is women. But ladies, if you are having trouble tracking along, you're just gonna have to ask your husbands at home like the apostle instructs, all right? One of the major pastoral issues that I think needs more attention during this time of reformation for the modern church has to do with women and the image of God. Right now, all the energy of this reformation is really focused on the men, the role of men, the importance of men, the terrible state of men today, how to turn men around, how to build men up, how to restore men to headship, all these kinds of things. It's right and fitting that that be the case because as the mantra that I helped to popularize goes, as goes the man, so goes his house, and as goes the house, so goes the church, and as goes the church, so goes the nation. That's one version of it. The chief point, of course, is simply that men, as the heads, set the direction and the pace for wherever we are going, either for good or for ill, and so if we want to change where we're going, our first and chief focus must be the men. But one of the dangers that accompanies this necessary correction is that our narrow focus will start to seem so normal to us that we never widen it to look at the other issues that still need to be dealt with. To give a concrete example, a woman whose man has reformed himself from an aimless sluggard into something like a dominion-taking son of God will certainly benefit greatly from that. Her life will be better in all kinds of ways, her own sanctification will improve and she'll be better able to pursue the upward call of Christ and better equipped to do so. But as the emphasis on masculinity increases, there are natural questions that she is going to start to ask and natural impressions that she may start to receive. Even though things are overall better, it would not be wrong for her to start feeling like it's really all about the men. And women are kind of tacked on for the sake of continuing the species. And it would not be wrong for her to feel unclear, maybe insecure, even uneasy, about how she is supposed to relate to God. She sees the men all gung-ho imaging God's rulership and dominion, and she sees that this is not given to women. And so she wonders, how exactly do I image God? How am I, a woman, supposed to imitate Christ, a man? And why is no one helping me understand this? And more importantly, there's a real danger that she'll be afraid to ask these kinds of questions because that sounds like feminist talk. Who do you think you are, Beth Moore? But then she turns to the internet to find answers instead and the sorts of people that she's likely to find actually are Beth Moore. We certainly do not want to create a theological culture that inadvertently pushes women back to the very errors that we are trying to recover from. And on the other side of the coin, there's also a danger to men here, some men at least, because without a full and balanced view of men and women as God's image, we can be more susceptible to the arguments of the hyper-patriarchalists out there, and believe me, I have dealt with them, 
who insist that women are not made in the image of God at all, and that anyone saying otherwise is actually worshipping a female god and is no better than a pagan idolater. Yes, I have met these people. Just as you don't want a culture with imbalances in it that inadvertently pushes women towards feminism, you also don't want holes in your theology that inadvertently push men toward hyperpatriarchy. You don't want your men discovering, for instance, that church fathers like Augustine thought that women were not made in God's image and therefore thinking, well, this must be the orthodox and historical view because the only alternative they can think of is feminism. So this is why I preached last week's sermon. You know, on the face of it, you might think it's kind of a random thing to preach in the middle of a series on vocation. It's not really about the calling of God, but in fact, the calling of God upon both men and women is explicitly grounded in his creation of them in his image. He calls us to do things for him because we are like him. He gives us the duties that we have because they are how we represent and reflect him in the world. So man, mankind, is not created as just one more piece of the natural world, one final animal in the kingdom of animals. He is created to exercise dominion over the natural world on behalf of God, to be the connecting point between heaven and earth, as we have seen. And this explicitly includes women. If you look at the account that Genesis 1 gives us, and you pay careful attention to the pronouns, this is actually really obvious. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock, all the earth, every creeper that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So whoever is ruling in this passage is the same as whoever is made in God's image, which is explicitly said to be man, but this is not man in the singular. It is not the man, Adam. It is man as both male and female. God uses the pronoun them four times and him only once. Why? Well, because he wants us to understand that man is a plurality of male and female, not just a singular body of humanity with males as heads. Genesis 5, 1-2 shows the same thing, saying literally, this is the role of the begettings of man. In the day God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them and called their name man when they were created. So it starts off with man as him, but then man becomes them. It's the same man both times, both male and female, are explicitly called man here and said to be in the likeness of God. Incidentally, this is why a lot of translations will render the Hebrew word here, which is Adam, as humankind or something like that. Sometimes the gender-neutered translations aren't actually a liberal conspiracy. Sometimes it's conservative Bible-believing scholars seeing that the term in Hebrew really is gender-neutral and thinking the best way to render it in English is therefore gender-neutral, lest bad readers think that only men are made in the image of God. And this is what happens when you expect people to read the Bible without any kind of guidance or instruction. 
So I don't want to overstay my welcome on the point of the image of God. I don't doubt that we all believe women are made in God's image, and we already delved into this last week, but I do want to make sure that we emphasize the exegetical basis for this doctrine. Last week was drawing a lot of connections that are not explicitly given to us in the text. They're implicit. They point us to how women image the Holy Spirit, but I want you to also see that there is a clear foundation in Scripture for this kind of circumstantial reading. What we did last week is much more about the resonance of ideas, about making inferences rather than reading direct statements out of Scripture. Because Scripture nowhere directly says, it doesn't explicitly say that women image the Holy Spirit. That's something we have to infer. But it does directly say that women image God And that motivates us to ask how, so that we can do the kind of inference that we did last week and develop a deeper understanding and and see that it is especially by imaging the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to turn to this idea now to look at some practical difficulties and applications. If women image God, especially by being life givers, how does that affect how they live? If they just have a baby, is that it? They've, they've done their duty. They've successfully imaged God. Nothing more to do, right? Is it maybe a little bit more involved than that? Are there implications that should direct how women order their whole lives? Well, before I get into this, I want to make sure I don't get misunderstood about something. When I say that women especially image God by being life givers, this does not mean that women exclusively image God in this way. What I mean is, it's not like to image God, you have to have children. If you don't have kids of your own, you are somehow not yet in God's image. Rather, it is that life-giving is the special way in which women are given to image God that men cannot. Men and women are like God in many ways, and the likeness is not something that we need to work to obtain, If it were, we could not say, for instance, that a baby was made in the image of God, which is obviously really dumb. You are made in God's image by nature, and it is because you are made in his image by nature that there are things that you can do to more greatly reflect him, to more greatly magnify that image. And the special blessing of women is that they can bring forth new life. Every woman by nature is a life giver. And so every woman images God in this way, even if she does not bring forth life. Even though all women are life givers by nature, not every woman, unfortunately, is blessed with the ability to use that gift. Some women are barren. Some women do not have husbands. Some women have husbands who are unable to give them children. These things are trials that faithful women sometimes have to endure, as we see in the case of Hannah, at least for a time, But by enduring trials, they are imaging God in a different way, even as the Lord Jesus endured many trials himself. So I don't want you to think, I wouldn't want anyone to get the idea that a woman who cannot or does not have children is somehow not made in God's image. Now this does actually bring us to the central issue that I want to consider today, which is the curse that made barrenness and lack of children a problem that we have to think about at all. When we look at the calling, when we looked at the calling of God on men, 
We spent time looking at how that calling is cursed because that has very practical outworkings. We have to understand not just the original design, but also how that design has been affected by sin if we are to successfully navigate the difficulties of living it out. And we did the same thing when we looked at the calling on women as wives. We looked at how their relationship to their husband is cursed so that we can navigate that. And we considered the example of Abigail, who lived wisely and righteously in light of that curse in a way that pointed towards its reversal through the ultimate redemption of Jesus Christ. In the same way, then, if women are called to image God as life givers, then we must look at how their begetting of children is cursed. And I would also like to consider another positive example when we do so of how that curse starts to work backward with Hannah. So let's start again in the curse of Genesis 3.16. Unto the woman he said, Multiplying I multiply thy toil and thy conception. In pain shalt thou bring forth sons. The very first thing to notice here is the parallel to the curse on Adam in the very next verse, which is unfortunately and inexplicably obscured in most Bibles, where God says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, in toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Now the word toil is used in both curses. Even though most Bibles, for reasons that utterly elude me, conceal this fact by saying of Eve that God will increase her pain in childbirth rather than saying her toil. Why does this matter? Can pain and toil not mean the same thing? Well, they can. But one of the chief ways that God gives us to understand his scriptures is through the repetition of key words that link different passages together. If we know that woman's curse involves toil and man's curse involves toil, then we understand that these curses are parallel in some way, and so they shed light on each other. When we understand one, we will understand the other better as well. But on the other hand, if we think that Eve's curse involves pain and Adam's curse involves toil, then we can easily conclude that they are not parallel and that we shouldn't rely on the one to understand the other. We've already seen something of the nature of the curse on Adam. We understand that the toil of his work is not confined simply to working the ground, but rather this is symbolic of everything that men are called to do in exercising dominion over the world and providing for themselves and their families. Nonetheless, it is the ground that is especially cursed so that, as it were, it will only give begrudgingly to Adam. If Adam wants something from the ground, he is going to have to work hard for it. He's going to have to toil for it, which means that the most extreme forms of the curse, the curse where you see it at its fullest extent, that looks like man not being able to get anything from the ground. If you think of famines, when the earth simply will not yield any crop to eat, or deserts or arctic tundras where somehow some animals manage to survive, but the earth produces nothing for man, and man cannot make it produce anything his dominion fails, the ground remains barren, it yields no fruit. It is, you might say, fruitless. This fruitlessness, this futility and toil, is at the heart of the curse on Adam. But 
because it is at the heart of the curse on Adam, and because the curse on Adam is parallel to the curse on Eve, it is also, in some sense, at the heart of the curse on Eve. This should really come as no surprise if you think back to the connection or the association that we've seen between the earth and the womb. You should expect to see this kind of parallel. Remember David says that he was knit together in the depths of the earth, meaning the womb. The womb is a microcosm of the ground. The womb also brings forth fruit. And the womb also is made fruitless and barren by the curse, at least when the curse is taken to its extreme. We see in scripture, woman after woman who is barren. Why? Because they are a living embodiment of the curse on Eve that the life giver shall toil to bring forth life in the same way the breadwinner shall toil to bring home bread. Their fruitlessness, these women, is reversed by God for the same reason that the fruitlessness of men like Joseph is reversed. Remember, Joseph becomes a bread giver after descending into the dungeon where he is, has no dominion at all. It is so that they can be an image of the redemption that God ultimately brings forth in the Lord Jesus. Little Judah, in fact, is a, an image of that redemption to us. He was brought forth out of a womb that was supposed to be barren. Just as God remembered Hannah, he also remembered you and Emma. He delights to make his people fruitful as a reminder and indeed as a participation in the fruitfulness of Christ. Not always, but it should hardly surprise us when he does this, given the repeated pattern that he lays down in Scripture of doing that. Now, I said before, Adam working the ground is symbolic of all his work of dominion. And so the curse on men goes beyond just agriculture. It's not just farming that's cursed. In the same way, Eve bringing forth children is an image of all her work in dominion. And so the curse on women goes beyond just the pain of childbirth. I think a lot of modern Christians read the curse on Eve as if it is God just making childbirth hurt more. If only that were all it was. I mean, childbirth does hurt a lot. I'm not dismissing or diminishing that. There's no question that the curse brought that about. But the words God uses here in the curse go far beyond just the pain of labor itself. In fact, labor is also symbolic. Think about the word itself. Labor. It is not just pain. It is toil. And this, as is so often the case, is a fractal pattern. It's not just the pain and toil of delivering children into the world as babies. It's also the pain and toil, especially the emotional pain and toil, of delivering them into the world as adults, after raising them, after you have fully brought them forth. All of this is stricken by sin. You see, God says he will multiply Eve's toil in conception, and in pain she will bring forth children. The nine months of pregnancy are only the seed of the whole process of bringing forth children. Eve conceives in her womb and nurtures the child in her body, increasingly struggling with the weight as he grows until finally in pain she labors to bring him forth into the world. But that is not the end. He doesn't just walk away. She still nurtures the child from her own body. He still causes her pain and toil. 
and as he grows, the effort does not diminish, but increases. Ask Sinead if William exhausts her more now than he did six months ago. And as he learns to walk and starts to gain some independence, she must struggle against the toil of anxiety and the pain of not being able to protect him. In fact, of having to give up the idea of protecting him gradually so that he can grow into a man who does not need protection. The bigger they get, the more pain they tend to cause you. As you see all the mistakes they make and your own sins reflected in them, and they turn from the path that you want them to take, and you toil and labor to bring them back. And then eventually they must leave your house, and you have the pain of losing your children to adulthood. It is bittersweet, no doubt. There is much pride and joy in it also, as there is at every stage of labor. And yet the pain and the toil is undeniable. Sin makes it so. So what should be a woman's response? How should women think about the pain and the toil of bringing forth children? I don't have a comprehensive answer for you. I uh, didn't have time to write a book, but I do want to consider the example of Hannah and commend three particular things that she models for us. I chose Hannah because she, out of all the women in Scripture, I was saying to Smokey last night, I think that most Christians have vastly underestimated the importance of the detailed descriptions that God gives us of women in Scripture. There's a reason that they are in there. But Hannah is the clearest example, in my opinion, of a woman responding with faith and holiness to the curse, and then the curse being partly reversed for her because of it. There are, of course, other women who were barren and conceived thanks to God's intervention. We have six of them in Scripture, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Manoah's wife, who is the mother of Samson, and Elizabeth are the other five. But Hannah is unique in the way that Scripture describes her own response to her barrenness and gives us such detail about her story. Just as Abigail gave us a unique and detailed example of a woman responding with faith and obedience to a bad husband and thus overcoming the curse on Eve that her desire should be unto her man, so Hannah gives us a unique example of a woman responding to barrenness with faith and obedience and being given by God to overcome the curse on bringing forth children. I don't mean that she didn't experience any pain or toil in having children, quite the opposite. Rather, the curse is overcome in that she is able to have children when she was previously barren, and then she models for us how a woman can do so with faith and obedience despite the pain and toil. Notice the language of verse 20 in our reading, which directly mimics the language of the curse in Genesis 3.16. So verse 20 says, It came to be at the revolution of the days that Hannah conceived and brought forth a son. And then in Genesis 3.16, we see the same Hebrew words in the same order when God says, I multiply thy toil and thy conception in pain, thou shalt bring forth sons. So I'm not just making up some point of connection here because I happen to like Hannah's story. There is a clear connection in Scripture between Hannah's story and the curse on Eve that God puts into the text by using that specific pattern of words in both stories. We are supposed to ask how Hannah can instruct us in this matter. How does Hannah's story bear upon the curse on Eve? So how does Hannah instruct us? 
again, I'm not going to comprehensively examine 1 Samuel today, but there are three things that I think we can learn, which I want to touch on as points of application that you can take away with you. The first is that it is legitimate and fitting to feel the pain of the curse. In Hannah's case, that pain was greatly increased, not only because she couldn't even have children, but because Penina rubbed salt in the wound by continually mocking her for it. Have you noticed that there are some people in Scripture whose names are only recorded so that everyone would know how horrible they were? That's all we know about Penina. She was horrible to Hannah about being barren. Incidentally, this is also one of those places where you have to be utterly deaf to the implications of the text to imagine that God is fine with polygamy. Penina is so relentlessly mean to Hannah that it is hard to imagine that she is a believer. This is not a woman after God's own heart. And here she is persecuting Hannah, who obviously does have God's heart, and Hannah is distraught beyond words. She is so miserable that she cannot eat. Weeping she wept, we learn in verse 10. When you see this kind of phrase in Hebrew, it is a way of intensifying what is happening, of telling us that it's really bad. God says this to Eve, multiplying, I will multiply your toil. In other words, I am going to massively increase it. Your toil is going to suck. He says to Adam, dying, you will die if you eat of the fruit. You're going to die so hard, Adam. (laughs) Weeping, Hannah wept. She was crying her eyes out. That is the idiom that we might use in English. It would have been entirely fair for Hannah to wonder why she was suffering in this way. Should it not be the daughters of the serpent who are cursed with barrenness? Why was she, a daughter of Yahweh, unable to have children, while the wicked Penina had sons and daughters both and mocked her plight? This is one of those questions that the wisdom literature of Scripture especially wrestles with. Why does it seem often the holiest people who suffer the most? while the wicked seem to enjoy God's blessings? And that is a question that deserves its own sermon, so I won't try to answer it now. I only want to draw your attention to the fact that if you feel this way, you are not the first of God's daughters to do so. And while God might not be preparing you to bring forth a son who will be the literal kingmaker of his kingdom, you can rest in knowing that he is preparing you for something James 1 tells us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith worketh patience, and that patience have its perfect work, that ye may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man or the woman that endureth trial, for when he hath been approved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to them that love him. It might sound like a paradox that you are simultaneously to acknowledge the bitterness of the curse, the pain of what you are suffering, and yet at the same time to count it all joy. How do you do that? You're allowed to say, yes, this sucks. You don't have to pretend everything is fine and you're loving every moment of motherhood. You should not deny when it is hard because you think that it should be easy or You shouldn't feel somehow you're not being holy enough or grateful enough. It is fitting to weep when you are miserable. You don't have to pretend to laugh because you cannot undo the sting of the curse by pretending that it doesn't sting. But you can overcome the sting of the curse 
by counting it all joy when it does sting. James does not say, feel all joy when you encounter various trials. He says, count it all joy. How is that possible? Because we live by faith and not by sight or feeling. The regenerate heart trusts in God and hopes in an end, an outcome that it cannot see. It knows that God is producing good in things which feel terrible. And it believes that tears will one day be turned to laughter. A, a regenerate heart is not overwhelmed by grief and misery, but works through the grief and misery, knowing that God is leading to a joyful end. We count it all joy because we are looking ahead to the joy that God has promised. Let me give you an analogy. If you think of an athlete running a marathon, he's in sight of the finish line, his legs ache, his chest burns, he is suffering greatly. Does his suffering produce joy in him? Of course not. It produces misery in him. But does he count the suffering as joy? Yes, because he sees the finish line approaching and he knows how that suffering is bringing him to it. Or to take a more pertinent example directly from Scripture, a woman, when she is in labor, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But when she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. But notice that it is only believers who can truly count suffering as joy. Because it is only believers who can truly know with confidence that God is bringing about something joyful through it. And this brings us to the second thing that we learn about Hannah, which is the necessity of bringing our suffering to God. To be able to count our suffering as joy, we must not only be relying on God for the future, but for the present. He must be involved in the whole process, not just the end or the outcome. Hannah was weighed down by her misery because she could not bear it alone. And so, she multiplied praying before Yahweh and poured out her soul to him. And afterward, we learn, she went her way and ate, and her face was not sad again. You might say she offloaded her pain onto God. And notice that she does not go away knowing that God has answered her prayer. She goes away hoping that God has answered her prayer and knowing that he has heard her whether or not he does. She goes away knowing that she is not in Penina's hands, but in God's. I wonder if Paul had this verse in mind when he instructed us not to be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to make our requests be made known unto God. For he adds then, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Incidentally, ladies, this also teaches us a related point that is quite important, which is that your husband is not and cannot be your savior. Look at the hapless Elkanah trying to comfort poor Hannah. Am I not better to you than ten sons, Hannah? No, nah, man, you're not. For one thing, you can't be that great considering that you have a second wife and she's horrible. But even if Elkanah were a model husband in every way... He cannot take away the pain of not having children or the pain of having them. 
In the same way, we husbands cannot take away all the pain that you suffer in pregnancy and in labor and in nursing and raising infants and everything that follows. We can try to help you through it. We can try to cheer you up with a double portion of food. Although that can backfire in terms of the misery department. But ultimately, we are helpless to do more than point you to the Savior who will take away all the pain in the end. We can walk with you, but only God can carry you. Finally, the third thing I want to touch on in closing, which Hannah teaches us, is also the hardest thing. It is the importance of a sacrificial heart. Hannah is coming up to the tabernacle in Shiloh with her husband to give up to God the best of their household's produce. That is what the sacrifice calls for. But she has learned from this that when you offer the sacrifice to God, you actually get to eat most of it yourself in the form of a great feast. Remember, you shall eat and rejoice before Yahweh your God, the law says. You bring the best of your substance to God, and he returns it to you and says, enjoy. In fact, not only does he return it to you, but usually he rewards your faithfulness by multiplying your substance. And that, again, is something that he promises in his law. And so when Hannah asks a great thing of God, that he would provide a son, she also offers a great thing to God, that her son would serve him all his days. Hannah resists the impulse that all mothers feel to hold on to their children and never let them go. This is such a powerful pattern that there are actually myths about it in mythology, about the devouring mother, the one who tries to keep her children close and therefore stifles and destroys them. Hannah is not a devouring mother. She is a sacrificing mother. She does not take her children. She gives them. She has fully understood and taken into herself the sacrificial pattern of life that God established in the law and especially in the sacrificial system. I'm afraid that most Christians today that I've met think the sacrificial system is really nothing but an image of the need to atone for sin. But it is far more than that. It is about an entire way of life. And it is a way of life that Hannah is living and continues to promise living. And she keeps her promise. She gives Samuel to God to serve him, not in her and Elkanah's house, but in the tabernacle in God's own house at Shiloh. She trusts God that he will return Samuel to her in some way that she does not even understand. She gives up everything of herself to God, even the fruit of her own body, believing that whatever happens, it will be a better outcome than if she had tried to hold on to it. And what happens is that the whole of Israel is renewed through the prophetic work of Samuel in raising up David as king. Hannah brings forth life and gives that life up to God, and God takes it and shapes it, and then in the fullness of time, he returns that life not just to her, but to all Israel as a prophet. And that prophet, in turn, raises up a king after God's own heart who ushers in a golden age of life for God's kingdom. It would be fruitful to compare the stories of Hannah and Ruth at this point, actually, to see how sacrificial system patterns are, are present in the line that brought forth David as well. But perhaps we'll leave that for another sermon. What I want to leave you with right now 
is the, these three principles, which they're really only one principle if you see how they fit together. Firstly, it is necessary to feel the pain of the curse, not to pretend that it isn't really pain. Secondly, it is necessary to count the pain as joy, knowing the end toward which God is leading you with it. And thirdly, it is necessary to offer back to God what he gives you so that you can receive it from him again more glorious than before. This last point is the hardest one, one that really requires more investigation. So God willing, we can delve into the sacrificial pattern of Christian life on an upcoming Sunday. But for now, let us respond to God's word with praise by singing Psalm 45 to the tune of Crown Him with Many Crowns.